0: Welcome to Future of Beauty Unfiltered, Episode 3. I am so, so genuinely excited today to have the amazing Millie Kendall OBE from the British Beauty Council join us today for what I'm hoping to be is a really exciting discussion around purpose, diversity, equity, inclusivity within the health and beauty industry. Um, Millie, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) It's it's tea
1: time. it's it's tea time let's have a chat it's tea
0: time i know it is tea time yeah well i'm like i said to you earlier i've got my dime bar ready and waiting to be tapping in (laughs) but um i feel like i really need to do a thorough introduction just to show the gravitas of the incredible things you've achieved in your career um so ceo of the british beauty council retail maven and brand creator you've obviously been instrumental in the success of many cult brands including shuimura Avida, Tweezerman, uh, Locatane, and obviously Ruby and Millie. So having worked in the UK's leading retailers, you've been creating and marketing beauty brands for the past 30 years. Being awarded an MBE in 2007 for your services to the cosmetic industry. Congratulations again, by the way. And then an OBE in 2022 for services to hair and beauty industry. What an incredible achievement. Um, Obviously, in 1990, you met Ruby Hammer and launched Ruby and Millie in 1998, which was, at the time, the first mid-priced makeup brand to cut across existing price and brand perception barriers, which, you know, while that's, you know, a tactic nowadays that a lot of people kind of try to achieve back then, you were really pushing barriers, weren't you, and launching straight into Harvey Nicks Um, and then Selfridges and simultaneously going on to retail successfully in Boots so, you know, hopefully that's a really nice little nod to a, a concept that you came up with way back when as well.
1: <laughs> um, that's one of my proudest and finest moments, I have to say.
0: Yeah, oh, do you know what? I'd is that to... The
1: marketing concept is still used today, that distribution network concept. Nobody yeah. else had ever launched in premium and mass at the same time. So,
0: what was or it that kind of. A little of, bit after. Yeah, what was it, I guess, that kind of um, actually got you thinking in that way in the first place?
1: Do you know what? I'd never shopped in boots for makeup and I don't even really worked in Harvey Nichols and but I really like the idea of making a product available to the masses I wanted everybody to have access to really cool cosmetics because back then you could only get like brands like shoe or mac or whatever mm. they were only really available in sort of niche sort of retail in London
0: and that and it was from there you just were like yeah let's mm. go let's go yeah. crazy and um I get. Well, has anyone actually come and spoke to you about it? Like I said, one of your proudest moments to be able to know that. Do that's you know what I do capability. say it quite a lot,
1: and I wonder whether it goes over people's heads. But the fact is, is that if if you think about that brand, everybody yeah. always thinks about oh, the packaging was so cool and the formulations were great and blah, blah 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 blah. But actually, the really clever thing was is that that marketing concept is still what people do today. People will still go, I want to launch in Selfages and then I want to roll out the Superdrug. I want to launch in Liberty and I want to roll out Boots what everybody wants is the volume and the accolade or the accolade first and then the volume and so Mm. so they might do I don't know you know liberty and then cult beauty or something so uh, it's different now because of the internet but back then there wasn't there was any brick and mortar but to me that's like the most successful part of that whole brand because that's the legacy that stays Mm. with everything that we do or that I've done over the years if what if a part of that Brand stays as sort of like an industry legacy, that's success, isn't it? Really? Absolutely. It's not about yeah. money or notoriety. It's about something that you've done, sticking, going, you know, sort of maintaining through generations. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, um, especially when it's from an academic point of view as well, if you look at it like yeah. that, you know, when people talk about their craft you know, you you have covered off so many different areas within your career already. I mean, one of the things I find really fascinating that I'd like to talk about a bit more today as well is obviously you've collaborated with beauty journalists, um, you know, Vogue Beauty Editor, Anna-Marie Solovie, um, launching concepts like Beauty Mark. So again, you know, that really groundbreaking approach to beauty and retail was kind of born from really, re- re- I can't talk today. This is why I need the dime bar. Realising that retail methods actually <laughs> yeah. haven't changed And this is one of the conversations we have at Pull all the time, which is uh, everything's changed, nothing's changed. You know, when you talk Mm -hmm. about marketing, you know, it's just finding ways to really slightly change it, but to really kind of disrupt that journey and embrace that, you know, despite consumers shopping very differently, particularly with increasing globalization and advertising online, the fact that Beauty Mart became this disruptive, kind of groundbreaking approach to retail beauty, you know, it's a really Mm -hmm. amazing. Um, it was a
1: very easily com- co- uh, copyable concept as well it was very easy for a lot of other retailers to sort of copy, copy the concept now what's really interesting is you get a lot of journalists that used to be at magazines and with demise of magazines they've all gone into sort of more commercial lines of work like Anna did mm. with Beauty Mart, you know it's sort of just Kate found Shaplan, that way forward Kate Shaplin who's obviously one of well, Anna and, and Kate were the founders of the British Beauty Council with me mm-hmm. but Kate Shaplin now has her own brand
0: Else, the back leg- of the
1: leg- beauty mark Legology. for the process. Not, not so much. It was around the same time she was launching her own brand.
0: Oh, really?
1: So, called Isn't... Legology.
0: Oh, okay. I don't actually, I've not heard of Legology. Yeah, Tell it's really more. a great
1: brand. It's a, so she was very well known as a journalist, but always, she was an expert on legs. We used to call her the Legologist. <laughs> so she developed a brand around it. She was a beauty director at the Telegraph. And then she went off and created her own brand. About legs. <laughs> um, literally about legs. So basically she's got like um, she's got a product called airlight, product called sunlight, lymph light. She's got basically products for people that struggle with challenges with their legs, whether that be swelling or the skin texture, or mm-hmm. she's got a product called cellulite as well. Um, and um, but she's really focused on the leg area.
0: Do you know what? It's really amazing. I had a colleague of mine actually in another life. She had, um, I think she called it lipidemia. So lymph light for me was really, is really familiar. And uh, she was on an absolute mission to educate as many people as possible around kind of the aesthetic challenges that can come with legs sometimes. It's amazing if we really start wanting to critique something that that much, we can yeah. uh, evolve it massively. Yeah. Um, moving on actually then just to, um, you know, I mentioned earlier on, your passion for the beauty industry. It, it really is so inspiring and obviously It's amazing to see your continued efforts recognised through MBE and OBE, along with, as we've just touched on, kind of these accolades and things you're very proud of and how you've been able to influence the marketing community. What is it actually within you that drives that passion?
1: Oh, my goodness. I don't know. I think I've got – I think I've probably got a sort of love of beauty, just a a love of beautiful things. Mm. I don't know if you can see my office, but – because although this is a podcast, we are on Zoom, but I just got this love-like stuff. Like, I like pretty things.
0: Yeah, I like
1: beautiful things. I like funny sort of... I just like things. <laughs> um, and I, I like the medium of, of beauty. I think that I like the packaging. I like the product that goes in it. I like the, the style, the shape, the smell, the taste. I like the services. I mean, I have my hair cut so often, it's ridiculous. I my hair never grows because I probably have it cut once every two weeks. Because I mean, you're just changing it all the time. I just change it all the time. I go to, like this week. I'm doing side partings. So you know, I just have my nails done. I have my nails done all the time. I'm just. I don't know what it is. It's like um. Oh, it's like my one true love. Um, I think it's I think because I've just grew up in it. It's just something I know. It's like second nature to me. It's just not. Uh, it's not a job. It's not my work. It's something that I just love and I like-minded people like Ruby Hammer, Anna-Marie Sullivan, Kate Chaplin, we all just love it. Given Mm. a new product arriving on your desk, you open that box and forget about unboxing and all that stuff on social media. It's like just what's in it. Sometimes I hate the boxes, they drive me nuts, but it's the product that's in it. And I would say a lot of my sort of industry friends, my mates, um, feel exactly the same way when they see a product that they love.
0: Do you know, it's really interesting because I, um, <clears throat> when I first started working for PULL, um, obviously specialising in health and beauty i never quite realized how obsessed i'd become and also how expensive it would become for mm. me to work in this category uh, you know you meet new people and as a, uh, even from a child i was obsessed with skincare i was constantly trying these new products i think i had a better skincare routine than my mom she used to kind of always joke about it yeah. but i think you do don't you it's the smells the texture and it, and it, for me it's the science behind it as well you know yeah. a lot of the time people just assume it, it's um surface level and it it, but actually the the knowledge and the craft that goes into shaping these these products these the communication of these products
1: the ingredients the
0: formulations all of it is actually phenomenal
1: I think there's a sort of pulling together of people as well I think that I mean I don't know about other industries but I doubt the food industry is as much of a community as the beauty industry is Mm. it is a community it's like a village it's like it's like you're living in a community, you know. People that work in food, or hygiene, or clothing, or are they? Do they have that kind of sense of community the way we do? I don't know if they I'm do. Maybe of fashion, some bits of fashion they do. Yeah. Some bits they do, but the fashion industry isn't as um, isn't as visible on the high street in terms of its workforce. Mm-hmm. So you don't. You don't walk down your local high street in your village or town and come face to face with your fashion designer at the till at the local supermarket, mm. but you could very likely to bump into your hairdresser or your nail technician. Yeah. I actually went, it's so embarrassing, I went to the pub the other night, bumped into the lady who owns the gift shop, whose wedding it was at the pub, which was really interesting, <laughs> And then who she invited? But the girl that does my waxing. Oh, so yeah. I'm standing at the bar at the pub with the girl that does my waxing. Like, is there anything? I mean, there's nothing more intimate than that, is there? No, absolutely. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to bump into the person that sewed my jeans together in the local part. I'm just not. It's just not the way. It's I think, a different um, kind of industry.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think one of the things as well is uh, hairdressing, I think in particular. Um, They're so much more than just hairdressers or even beauticians. I have shared some of the most intimate secrets or thoughts or challenges that are going on in my life with my hairdresser or my beautician way before I've spoke to anyone else within my inner circles, Mm. you know? And I think that's another thing. There is that sense of community, like you're saying, I think not only just with other people, but within yourselves, it allows you, and also I do think hair and nails and skin, it allows you to kind of express yourself personally, doesn't it? So so, yeah, that's, I think, what makes it very intimate.
1: I think think the thing is, it's just not, to me, it's just not a job. I grew up in it. My dad's a hairdresser my mum was a darkroom technician i grew up in this industry don't really know anything else so to me it's like life it's just yeah. a lifestyle live and breathe it yeah
0: and so moving on then to, i guess the british beauty council a little sure. bit. um so that was the first formal group to lobby legislative and policy issues at the government level for the beauty industry yes. which is is just incredible where do you see the efforts of the organizations going in the next five years in that area you know what are you wanting to achieve there
1: I mean I think really to be honest with you what I want to achieve in five years is probably what we set out to achieve in the beginning I didn't realize we were going to get so far down the road in three years but um and a lot of that's to do with COVID it exacerbated a lot of different things like the industry's move to online and Mm. um you know closure of department stores and things like that so um I think that if you if you look at our original pillars, Mm. they were reputation, education, innovation. And obviously, we didn't really know whether those pillars would work with those titles. But I had for a very, very long time written down the list of the challenges the industry had faced, Mm. everything from. Um, it's reputation in terms of DEI, in terms of its focus on men's grooming or lack of focus on men's grooming, mm. um, celebrating the industry, the reputation of the sector, uh, government relations, innovation, sustainability, um, education, which I still think is a mess. But anyway, it's a whole big story there. Um, so I sort of wrote down everything that was I thought was cha- a challenge. And obviously, because I've worked in lots of different areas of the industry I could see it from both a salon side, a freelancer side. So I had done hair and I've done makeup both in a salon, out in a studio. I have had my own makeup brand. I've had my own retail shop. I've worked with some of the bigger corporations. I've owned a PR agency since I was 23. I know what it's like to be a small employer of businesses. I know what it's like to have premises and have to pay rent and payroll and VAT Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So... I had a pretty good idea of what the challenges were but I also had a pretty good idea of what was so bloody brilliant about our industry (laughs) so we do get knocked a lot about our sort of diversity equity and inclusivity and yes there are a lot of challenges that face our industry but our industry is made up of 88% of our industry uh, businesses are owned by women pretty impressive
0: Mm -hmm. we're probably in comparison um, to the tech world for sure in
1: comparison to tech retail hospitality we're double retail mm-hmm. double hospitality the only industry i think that trumps us in terms of having more women in it is the um, nhs that's it so so that so that's sort of quite impressive but then you know there are challenges and you're sort of looking for what is the truth around these 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 topics and so you kind of have to sort of peel the layers of the onion of and so for the first sort of few years it was like kind of these are the things that I think are a challenge. There are parts of this that are really good. So, for example, with DEI, there's a lot of women in our industry. Also, our industry is a really amazing place. If you don't feel like you fit in, for the LGBTQ community, it can mm-hmm. be a very warm and inviting, you know, environment. A lot of hairdressers that I met when I was an assistant at Tony and Guy were just sort of, they, I think we were just those kind of people that didn't feel like we fit in anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Could really express ourselves. It was a kind of place where that was very welcoming. Having said that, on the back side of that, our industry is incredibly binary. You walk into a shop, you've got pink stuff that smells of roses and black packaging that smells of musk and sandalwood. well people that binary? I don't think they are. You know, um, I'd sometimes would like to pop into the barber shop across the road because actually it looks really clean and it's quite inviting.
0: If mm-hmm. I just wanted
1: my hair trimmed. So um would I be welcome in that? I don't know would I feel odd maybe you know I I have a child who's non-binary so I understand the fact that when they were younger they didn't want to go to a ladies hair salon and have their hair cut and colored you know they wanted to go and have you know an undercut short back and size basically so it's it's like there are sort of every single challenge the industry faces there are good and bad sides to it mm-hmm. and so what we've done over the past four years is kind of like gone done a deep dive into that. Like with the report we did, the courage to change on sustainability. Yep. Are we that awful? We're not that bad, actually. You know, we've got a sense of circularity in our, in, in our industry because we pick plants out of the ground and we put them in our products, you know, and then we use it. And so, you know, but we, we also are, are an industry of consumable products. So there's a lot of packaging waste. Mm-hmm. So you know, how we make our products isn't that bad. Um, but how we, how wasteful we are is, is really quite bad. And also greenwashing is terrible. So mm. there are elements of it that aren't so bad and then there are elements. And, and also we've come together really well as an industry to try to tackle greenwashing and sustainability. So, so what I would like to see is basically everything that we started out with um, kind of fixed, really. So I would like to see... Um, well, we ne- we now have different pillars. They're sort of similar, but they're sort of more refined now. So education has become talent. Um, I would like to see a regulated industry, which is something that we're working on right now with the aesthetics piece. I would like to see us operating at the highest levels um, in terms of services reputation. I don't I don't want unlicensed people doing Botox in front living rooms. Mm-hmm. That's just not an option because yeah. it's damaging to our reputation as a sector I'd like to see our in our industry being less binary I would like to see our industry come together and solve the plastics problem because it's something that keeps me awake at night um, the amount of plastic we've got that we use um, and um, I would like to see um, growth and success and equality and um, but equally, I'd like to see a lot of you know look profitability really mm.
0: I think as well there's an element of kind of acknowledgement from the wider communities on actually the skill that's within that and I think some of that is around mm. education yeah. um you know so education
1: is the biggest beast it's like the thing yeah. that's the hardest to get your head around because education is so is so um uh it's so difficult in our industry um we we don't have a lot of higher education courses, so therefore we're not seen as being very academic we're over indexed in further education courses but then the providers aren't always um accredited or or aren't always sort of i i I would say the word legit but maybe that's not the right way to putting it but they're certainly not
0: they're not fulfilling it in the right way no they're
1: not really delivering on the the level that i feel that they should do you know they're getting away with like short courses and giving people certificates and so people Mm. are going out and doing treatments that they're really not qualified to do Mm. um so we're sort of let under index in higher education over indexing further education to the point where in further education in sort of 2018-19 65,000 people did a level NVQ two and three but those people didn't enter into our industry so we're sort of we're sort of cramming them all into these further education courses because we think mm. they're too stupid to do anything else and then we're not able to give them jobs because we're not showing them that actually you can go and do a hairdressing degree and go and then do a, a course in um, chemistry and then become a formulator for shampoos and conditioners or whatever <laughs> it might be yeah. so um because there's nothing wrong with a formulator having had some practical training in hairdressing exactly in order for them to get to the point where they're a formulator so that is something that we are working on right now we've got a program that we're developing called future talent because i don't think in the short term that we even have even if with with the best will and intention, I don't think we're going to be able to completely resolve and overhaul the education system for our industry in this country. I mean, even down to beauty therapy, you've got seven levels of coursework that you do: mm-hmm. level one, level two, level three, level four, level five. Oh no, you don't, because you don't. There is no level six. You just go straight to level seven. I mean, there isn't even a level six. It's like, it's the stupidest system I've ever, you know, um, heard of. So I don't know. The whole thing is like, it's astounding to me, really. That yeah. uh, But, you know, you can't wipe the slate clean and start again at this point.
0: Yeah. So, I think it's really interesting yeah, it's as well. it's difficult. Because... Um, I like to kind of think of it like a chessboard. All the pieces potentially there, they're just not looking in the right direction. So you exactly. could have a cracking game, but you're all playing a different one at the moment.
1: Exactly. I think
0: the um, the regulation thing for me is something I'm really passionate about, yeah. actually, as well, particularly within the aesthetic space. So we've worked with a few companies. Um, you know, we, we've had the pleasure of meeting quite a lot of brands, actually, mm. um, a couple of hundred in the last few years. Of all different shapes and sizes and actually regulations and having those clear boundaries. You know, like you were saying, you know, yep. Kathy, who works in HSBC, could very easily go spend a hundred quid, learn how to put Botox in your face and then start doing it in her downstairs toilet on a Tuesday afternoon.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and I think the damage that potentially can do to kind of industry. I mean, it's
1: it's a matter of patient safety, first yep. of all, right? That's obviously very important. The damage it does to our industry is appalling. And, and to be quite honest with you, you know. It is a skill, and it requires to have a doctor on the premises. You have to have a doctor on the premises if yeah, something goes prescriber. wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who's prescribing it? I mean, obviously, there's you know, there's there's a number of things. One is is that these people shouldn't be able to get insurance. Number two is they shouldn't be able to get the product. And well, number three, they shouldn't be able to to do the courses. So there's a number of things that are a problem. But mm-hmm. we're, we're drafting the legislation, so it, it's going to be two years until we get yeah. it push through but our, uh, Victoria's doing that with them um, the JCCP Victoria's our chief of policy so it's definitely happening I mean it was actually music to my ears because I thought when we first started the British Peace Council that was under reputation it was under our reputation pillar and I just thought there is no chance we're ever going to get that pushed through with the government until maybe the second three-year period because we kind of like work in Three year periods. Mm-hmm. So I was like, at the end of six years, we'll be able to push for regulation because I felt confident that we'd be able to, you know, um, get our industry in with government to 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 a degree where they would start to look at that and go, oh, that's a problem. But three years down in, we we managed to start it, so that's well ahead of schedule.
0: I think a lot of that potentially. Do you think that maybe that's some of that down to the acceleration we saw within um, home treatments within uh, because of COVID because of the way in which I think consumer, I've got my dog on the floor snoring away yeah. next to me right now. So <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's quite sweet.
0: He's going to start barking, no doubt, in a second. Um, you know, in the pandemic, a particularly kind of just shy of post when they were uh, bringing everything back mm. very slowly, opening premises, treatments... We saw when we were doing a little bit of research, we saw a rise in the willingness for home treatments, be that, you know, doing your own home massage and everything else. And this was fully before salons were able to open. Do you think that's what actually saw a bit of an influx in, I'm going to call it the home Botox type? You know what, it's a funny
1: one because it's very difficult. It's easy to say that it was that because I would say a lot of politicians would do probably have those treatments so Mm. you know and i i don't i think they you know i mean i i went i was at an event at number 10 recently and a very well-known politician first thing she wanted to talk to me about was botox um and so there is a lot of um knowledge of it and actually she said oh i'm really delighted that this is all happening because it shouldn't be something that you should be ashamed of getting in the back room of blah 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 you know Mm. um so so they they all seem to be um i don't know I don't know, that's a really good point. I hadn't really thought of it. I think I think a lot of, um, there was a lot of visibility on our industry because something was taken away that we couldn't have. Yeah, You could order food, you could mm-hmm. order clothes, you could order pretty much everything. But what you couldn't do is order a massage because you couldn't come into close contact with somebody. You couldn't get a haircut. You couldn't mm-hmm. get your nails done. Mm-hmm. Um, and your physical you know how you manifest physically your physicality how you look mm. when you are on zoom all day long oh it's yeah pretty stressful I mean I had like gray hair half my head was gray now I think uh, I quite liked it but you know at the time <laughs> I was like oh my god I can't wait to get my hair colored you know it's sort of you sort of we we were grinning and bearing it weren't we we were sort of yeah. where, where are the zoom filters oh you my know? goodness I changed I'm so anti-filters and I still <laughs> bloody yeah. use them because the thing is is that it's important and you're having to nowadays on zoom on the phone you have to look at yourself all day long
0: yeah I think that's it you're more aware of they're not flaws but all of the things you love and there's and sometimes don't love about yourself for whatever reason um and I think that's the challenge is you're forced to basically constantly look in a mirror you know um and I think it is a
1: long time if you're used to having Botox and fillers to not be able to have anything
0: or even just get your hair done but again it was like I was saying it's kind of be able to speak to someone and have that kind of offload it's that self-care it's you know yeah. the i've, I've spoken about this a lot with with lots of people at part of the british beauty council but actually the the mental health
1: yeah
0: impacts that the industry brings mm. that in another a positive goal, like, way
1: yeah that's another sort of one of those long-term goals that part of our talent pillar is to ensure that the the mental health of the nation is is um is supported by the services that we offer so mm where the NHS maybe is overly stretched, um, um, where, where it's sort of overly stretched, I felt like um, the, the, they could have reached out more to our industry for sort mm. of things like touch therapy and yeah. um, certain services. I mean, when you, when you go to, um, um, let's say for example, Marie Curie clinic, right? So they're there, it's a hospice, they're treating people that are at sort of end of life, with with cancer essentially. Um, and when you're in the lobby or the waiting area, there are brochures for massage, acupuncture, Reiki healing, all of that is there in that environment where people need pain relief,
0: mm-hmm.
1: they need positivity, they need their mental world. Why is it only there at end of life? Why are those treatments not available on the NHS before you get to that point, so that, you know, do you know what I mean? And it's like, oh my gosh, I feel 100%. like I feel like there's it's a really, it's really overlooked. But obviously, that's a whole different department that we're tra- dealing with at government level. And we would have to get nice to recognize, nice is the a part of the NHS to recognize that those services were of benefit, which there must be some reason and this is where we start to have to peel back the layers of the onion, um, um, there must be some reason why those treatments are allowed at hospice and not at hospital.
0: Well, I think as well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's so um, I've got a palliative care at this point yeah. um, is so my, my sister, thankfully, she's um, in remission now, but my sister last year was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of leukemia uh, Lauren by, by Sarah London, actually, yes. who you guys introduced us to, was incredibly helpful in that process. But um, she, when she was beginning that chemotherapy, she very much, because of the type of leukemia, she was in hospital. That was it. That's where you stayed. And actually, once a week, they had a group of this was at Frimley Park Hospital yeah. in uh, Surrey a group of therapists go around and actually with essential oils. I think we spoke about this actually at British Mm, beauty week last week, uh, last year, we had someone from Elemis, Sarah, I can't quite remember her full name, unfortunately. Um, But we were talking about again, how the spa industry is, potentially a little bit behind as far as being recognized for the amazing mm-hmm. things they can yeah. do yeah. when it comes to working with essential oils and the treatments and the way in which your body responds to those scents based on what they need All we've of got this a really coverage, good
1: report actually on our website around mental health and touch therapy that helena who's our ceo who ceo who was the um, general manager of the uk spa association previously she wrote that and um uh, it's, it's pretty impressive. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that you're very lucky because that would have obviously been either put on by the hospital or somebody would have yeah. organized that internally, but that is not standard practice. And no, the it's not, is, is that um, it's sort of few and far between, and it really mm-hmm. needs to be much more formalised, open and a, a much more formal. And we really need to the government to understand or NHS to understand that you know, this, this beauty treatments not the enemy. They're not the poor relation. Actually, they can work very well in synergy with um, traditional treatments.
0: Yeah, and do you know what? We did acknowledge at the time actually how how fortunate she was to witness that. But I think the impact that it it made, mm-hmm. the impact it had for her, it really opened up for me and a lot of the team when we were kind of looking into these these options in the industry of how powerful it can really be. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier when we were talking, I can you know, I can hear in your voice, I can see when you're talking, you're really passionate about yeah. uh, gender equality, mm-hmm. inclusivity, and obviously policy and advocacy, which we've already spoke yeah. about. Um, in one of our most recent pieces of research that we did, our Future of Beauty research this year, we found that 71% of women want health and beauty brands to support body positivity. Mm-hmm. But 64% of men, don't personally feel well represented in the industry I know you touched on this earlier around kind of men and I for me I I refer to men in a little bit as the forgotten category (laughs) sometimes the forgotten yeah well I mean there's a
1: sort of we talk a lot about you know don't use the word anti-aging women's bodies blah 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 I mean okay there's a bit of a derogatory dad bod kind of comment that goes around sometimes but the fact is is that I still find that the one thing that we overlook as women maybe is the impact on men when they lose their hair. Mm-hmm. I'm, like, I'm like seriously obsessed by this concept of imagine waking up in the morning and you've got no hair. We, 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 we're very supportive of women and women can wear wigs and you know scarves and cover-ups and a lot of times when women lose their hair, it's due to cancer treatments and things mm-hmm. like that. But given the massive proportion of men that lose their hair, Mm. like I think one of the the biggest revolutions and really one of the biggest sort of most positive things for men is hair transplants Mm. over the past sort of 10, 15 years because they've become not commonplace, but much more accessible. And I think we sort of overlook like what losing your hair (laughs) might do to your mental well-being at that point or how you see yourself or you know we often everyone talks about the fact that William hasn't shaved his head mm, Why yeah he shaved, you know it's sort of I don't know it's just one of those sort of things that I sort of question I think about sometimes I think hmm, you know men and aging and uh, do you think, and I, and I, don't general, think men, though? I think I think also men men aren't just like butch sort of musk wearers either
0: do you know what it's really interesting? So I was um, having a chat with um, Joseph Harwood, um, obviously who mm. again is a part yes. of the committee yes. for yes. D.I. Yeah. Um, and um, what uh, they didn't go into detail, but they're working with a uh, famous a nose perfume nose. Yes. In and uh, one of the comments that was made was that up in the up into the fifties, perfume was actually unisex. And it was marketing that kind of created this male, female, musky, florally kind of sweet,
1: sour. It's it's like I know, I mean, I've worked with journalists all my life and a lot of them are, are copywriters on products. And a brand will have a very similar formulation, maybe slightly different in terms of fragrance, but even the copywriting is different. So the writing on the front and the back of the pack is designed to be attracted to women or men. But the product's really no different. whatsoever. at all?
0: Absolute collagen does the exact same thing. They talk about collagen, plumpness, beauty, but they target men. They talk about proteins. Completely different language. Yeah, it's language. Language is different. Yeah. Do you think that the um, health and beauty industry is actually showing uh, some gender inequality by potentially only applying body positivity principles to women in adverts rather than men. You mentioned that kind of dad bod joke, and we've definitely seen a lot of that, but there's definitely, for me, when I look around that there is still, we're a little bit behind still a little bit when it comes to men. I think. Yeah, but
1: I think again, that it sounds that sort of slightly binary kind of weirdness. Uh, yeah, I do think so. I think that there's, I think there's a massive amount of um, challenges still facing our industry um, across, um, across equality. Um, um and yes I do think that I think that we are I mean if there's one thing the Kardashians did do well and I don't really often say that there's a lot that I, <laughs> I'm a fan of but you know the sort of more shapely body
0: yes <laughs> all yes. of a sudden
1: became a bit more accessible big, uh, big bums are good big now <laughs> big bums I mean I I spent my entire childhood trying to hide my big bum um now I've my embraced training, it <laughs> now my trainer makes me do glutes which just makes it bigger and bigger yeah that's it it's all about squats I'm okay with it um so I think there's sort of in that regard I think there's sort of um um that there's been some positivity but I'm not so sure that that has extended to men I think that um I mean when we first started with the British Beauty Council we held a town hall meeting right at the beginning back in like 20 early 2019 or end of 2018 and we had two panel talks on diversity and equity inclusion and then we had these breakout rooms and I hosted one of the rooms and my job was to basically listen to I think there was about 20 20 odd people around a table and I was to take notes and then we were going to sort of take what was written on these whiteboards and kind of sort of almost do like a word um word cloud you know and kind of look at what, what what were the real challenges facing our industry and there were people like Kay Montano's a makeup artist, mixed race makeup artist and there was Ate Jewel quite a lot of well-known people were there and I was, there were a lot of loud voices in the room as well and then all of a sudden um, there was this guy put his hand up and he was a South Asian guy and he said, I appreciate all the talk about women of colour but none of you are speaking to me and I've got money to spend on product and I was like oh my God, you've just nailed it. Like, yeah. we can very, you know, uh, we can be very loud and very overbearing and then we just forget somebody and all of a sudden someone's left behind. You know, it's, it's not, it's easily done. It's not right. Um, we have to consciously um, look at how we are marketing our product to be more inclusive and more, you know, do we want, okay, there are some products that maybe are, the formulations are slightly different for different hair textures or different uh, skin colors. You know, you're not gonna put a sort of very, uh, sun protection on if you're, that's very white and full of mineral, you know, zinc and stuff like that on a dark skin. So sometimes formulations, are suited to certain types of people Mm. but essentially the sort of basic makeup of a beauty product shouldn't come with an identity you should Mm. be able to personalize it and it should become about you not about who that product is marketed to surely that's the whole goal of personalization is that a generic product any product can be personalized to the person that's buying it i don't Absolutely. want to be told by a marketing department that that product is very milly i remember when i had a makeup brand ruby and milly and i went to the formulators and they went this is very ruby and milly or this is not very ruby and, and i was like don't you dare tell me what is not ruby and Millie yeah. Like. Yeah. but but you know i think i think that's sort of that's what. That's the sort of frustrating part of the industry is that we've not got to the confidence level as an industry to say, do you know what, buy this product, you make what you want of it. You add your own DNA to it. You let that product become you, not let that product define you. It's.
0: But do you think that's because sometimes we have um, a habit of trying to be everything to everyone? And actually there's something really powerful about saying... I've developed this skincare in particular, right? There are so many different types of skin and challenges that come with skin. Someone that's got very dry skin is going to need something different from someone that has oily, combination, acne-based skin.
1: Yeah.
0: Rather than saying, you know, you're Hannah, you're in your 30s, you've got dry skin, you need this product. It's kind of going. We know how to make products for people that have these problems. And that's as far as it goes. That's Yeah, that's, but the
1: problem is, is that they're not always able to identify whether they've got the problem or not.
0: But that's so where education obviously needs that, to play a huge part.
1: But, but that's what's really challenging. So let's say I have a daughter who's now 15. When she was about 13, she was getting some hormonal spots. To her, it was acne. She wanted me to bring <laughs> yeah. home anything that was going to half burn her face off. Yeah. I saw on TikTok this product, you have to bring it home. I was like, that's far too strong for you. You cannot use that on your face. You know, you, unless you wear about three inches of sunscreen every single day for the rest of your life, you'll never be able to sit in the sunshine. You know, it's like, it's like uh, the, the challenge with that is you're presuming that every single consumer has the level of education that somebody in the industry has. Mm. I go in and I'll say, I've got very dry skin. And then the therapist will go, no, it's not, it's actually very dehydrated. Or I'll say, my skin feels very X, Y, Z. And they'll go, no, it's just that. We, we, it's, it's, we're not, as a consumer, when I'm saying I'm a consumer, I'm not as well educated as the therapist. Um, so what I determine I need is probably different not, to what
0: you actually not, need
1: not always what i really need
0: and so, how do you th-
1: yeah
0: how do you think brands can look at combating this because obviously <clears throat> you know well,
1: diagnostics person. i think is the yeah. way forward i mean hirons just launched what a platform yeah. didn't you Karen? on irons i think diagnostics is the way forward and really? i think that it's going to have to move a lot faster technologically to actually hmm. do the right thing and be as good as it could be but then you know what i would love is i would love like to be able to wake up in the morning diagnose my skin i'd like my 3d printer to print out just a bit <laughs> of the product that i need yeah that in the perfect exactly
0: perfect proportion as perfect well proportion, we overuse perfect amount.
1: no yeah. more like really simple just yeah give me that i'm super happy There
0: are those companies and tools out there actually. There's a few that we've come across in that time that they are trying to push into those areas with that technology. I think this is where I really like it. I
1: really like it.
0: And I I I don't care about all
1: the packaging and bits and bobs. I mean, I do like it. I like pretty things, you know, but I don't have it because I use it. I have it because I just collect it. But then I'd like my beauty collection is not something I put on my face, it's like a museum.
0: know well yeah it's
1: not for me it's slightly different I'm collecting things like I would collect art or you know or yeah
0: amazing well so do you think then that um you say about diagnostics you know when it comes to education for a brand to a consumer what do you think brands can do to kind of actually be better at bridging that gap between what the consumer thinks they need versus what the professional... Because like you've already touched on, a hairdresser Mm. will know so much more. They know actually the fundamental structure of the hair and how to potentially not reverse some things that are irreversible, right? But how Mm. to actually improve whatever it is they're looking for.
1: Well, I think the fusion of services and and consumer you know, spending in, in consumers and retail. I think the fusion is coming ever close together. I mean, even Holland and Barrett have got a blow limited in their shops now, you know? So I think there's that sort of, that how that fusion has been for a very long time, put a salon into a shop, Put do an altar, you know, do mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I'm not so sure that's always the way it should be. I think there are other ways of doing that. So, Cult Beauty, when it first started, I was one of the experts on Cult Beauty where I would recommend certain products so you kind of almost created like curate like people would curate their favorite products and explain why they use them and what their skin was like so that you could go, oh, yeah, my hair is that color. I should use that product. Or my skin is like that. I should use that product. So so that kind of curation piece is great. That's also something that obviously you see a lot on social media. So you're people like Karen and Hines or Deja, these are professional women who – have trained as estheticians so they're very well you know adept at saying um giving good advice Mm. so you've got you've got sort of that advice being very readily available all across social media that advice being very in some sense available on e-commerce platforms and then obviously retailers are trying to bring that in um to their sort of retail environments keeping it still quite separated what i would like to see is that to be integrated more Mm. into the sort of sales banter you know you get it with the makeup artist so you go to mac and you go to sharp tilbury and there's a makeup artist who's trained to do your makeup Mm -hmm. i'm not so sure the girls that are selling the skincare are always estheticians or trained beauty therapists maybe some of them are but i would like to see that maybe more obvious mm. actually when we had like Clarins and yeah they were I don't know if that's so obvious anymore I think um,
0: Clarins in particular as well that is a huge part of their brand identity you know mm. that's it's the white yeah. lab coats you know guess.
1: yeah I mean I wonder just if that sort of I don't know I see that 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 fusion is something that we can really strive for Mm.
0: I feel like we pushed towards it a little bit in lockdown in a really weird way because the actual physical bricks of mortar element was closed. Yeah, it was you could have a FaceTime with someone in store. So you ended up going back a little bit to these personalized one on one consultations where they're then walking you through the products available based on the challenges you were explaining. So some of that knowledge that you're talking about, I think, was very much there. It was um, interesting. You touched earlier on kind of influence and social media and obviously you have a real range of types of people when you talk about influencers you've kind of got the qualified Mm. professionals that have trained in these areas and then you just have influencers from a following perspective but they might potentially be talking about the same product do you think that sometimes can do more harm than good when you have those unqualified influencers
1: kind of well we're actually funny we've just started a program we're in pilot scheme at the moment where we are educating those influences that come from fashion and lifestyle and travel really? or whatever. So we've got a pilot program. A we've got about 10 or 12 of them on so far. We've created an eight module course on skin health and skin physiology so that they can learn. It's like sort of, it's called learning with experts. So it's a platform mm-hmm. that existed that we used and we just sort of I say, we sort of white labeled it, but basically we did the training.
0: Mm-hmm. They sort
1: of form the package and the platform. And so they, um, they, yeah, they sort of help us to um, to sort of um, prepare the modules and there's like homework and assignments and you have to sort of deliver. So it's like going to school. Um, and what
0: was, what was the driving force behind kind of looking at getting that pilot up and The running?
1: Gwyneth Paltrow piece with the sunscreen, you know, on the cheekbones. <laughs> I mean, I love Gwyneth, but God knows that's stupid. You know, that's just ridiculous, isn't it? And it was like... He's
0: and gone too far. Of,
1: it sort of came to me that like, you know... People aren't wrong, that is really dangerous. You know, people with that kind of influence Mm. need to be responsible about what they're saying because it's incredibly dangerous. And again, you know, if my job is to sort of protect the reputation of the industry, we would worked really hard to that point, to get to that point where we were sort of being invited to meetings at number 10 and 11, and we were sort of sat around the table. I wasn't gonna screw that up because somebody in America decided to put some cream on their cheekbones and make us look like a bunch of idiots you know there was yeah. no way so I just thought well what can we do and then I was talking to a colleague of mine who's one of our patrons and he was saying you know or oh, maybe we could we could educate people I'm like how are you going to do that in such a massive degree it's like it's almost impossible to do but then our um, education for the president said weirdly I've been talking to this organization called learning with experts they are willing to do this pro- project with us. So it's in pilots at the moment. We'll see what happens with it.
0: Oh, wow. Good luck. Yeah. I'd love to hear how that one yeah. evolves. I mean, it I just think...
1: means people can sign up. I think we can have like 100 people on each course at a time, which I think is quite, quite good.
0: I think as um, well, it kind of actually validates that influencer even further to say they have taken the time the course, to find yeah. out what they're, you know, so they know the words that are coming out of their mouth. They do know what they're talking about and exactly. therefore they can have that. It is that duty of care. It's like obviously yeah. how you know 18 months ago or however long it was you know it kind of came into play that you had to declare you couldn't use filters when you were talking about skincare yeah. products on social media so these small little shifts they are having a positive impact
1: I think in the right way yeah I think so I think and also the thing is is I think if people know that we're on to them yeah exactly yeah Millie's
0: watching you I'm watching, watching you, <laughs> and, you know, I always
1: say because like somebody you know people always talk about sort of social media and, and stuff and I say i always think like you know the british beauty council we're not influencers but we are relatively influential yeah i think there's a difference between you know the different types of influence i mean i'm not you know i don't want to be influenced because oh, it's a difficult job um but we are we are i'm very keen on the digital content creation community because a it's a source of revenue obviously mm-hmm. that is included in like the you know, Beauty Industries PL and mm-hmm. um, for, you know, brand Great Britain. Um, and um, and it's very important. And also um, I think we should be legitimising it as a proper route in a career. And I think that, you know, it's a long, long time. A lot of people from one side of the industry have been going, pointing fingers at people on the other side of the industry. Mm-hmm. And actually that's wrong. It's just wrong because um, I think that there's a way of incorporating... Both sides,
0: and I think that's that. Like you're saying, it's. it's a, I think there's an element of balance that um, that's. It's never going to be a fixed picture with this. Yeah. That's the whole beauty of this category. Is there is that creativity. Everyone can kind yeah. of be independent, be who they ever feel, look, sound, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, and I think this was one of the things that sparked off a lot of our internal conversations on the late last lace piece again that dime bar is waiting for me because I like, can't talk now uh latest piece of research which was can beauty be mm. both and both really important here aspirational and inclusive because it split a room that that question alone mm. when we were talking about it because you had me going no I I, I, you know, I walk past ads in Marks and Spencers in the underwear department and see kind of amazing big round peaches with stretch marks. And I'm going, yes, this is what I want to see. This, this resonates with me. And then I had, you know, someone very similar age to me go, I don't want to see that. I want to see something I can aspire to be. And I'm like, why can't it be both? Why does it have to be one or the other? And I feel like sometimes we're kind of picking a side and actually that's where we're trying to find out what the consumer wants. And I think there is definitely, um, there's definitely a blend of the two. You know, we can sit here right now and say, you know, we want to be who we are. We want to be ourselves. We want to be independent and we want to own it. But at the same time, we've just sat there and said, well, I think there's a difference between
1: in. what picture makes you feel better and what picture makes you buy product.
0: Well, that's a good point.
1: You know, I mean, you know, and, and also it's, it's sort of, I mean, the way I was looking at it with the sort of education side, and one of the things I'm quite keen to do, which is sort of, again, part of probably the next three-year plan is to look at makeup artistry um, and, and look at digital makeup creators, people that put makeup on their face, mm-hmm. who are oftentimes earning a lot of money and have become very famous very quickly for putting makeup on their faces compared to people that I've known that have been makeup artists for decades and decades and decades and work in editorial who probably don't get the kind of day rate that a lot of these people get to post, a, you know, square image on Instagram, mm. and the people, my friends, that are the makeup artists that are either doing that sort of press junkets or editorial or whatever it is, um, are the ones that are getting booked, let's say, to do a show because the show that fashion designer wants the influencer makeup artist to be backstage because it gives them a boost of credibility or whatever. And the fact is, is that how do those two worlds live together? How do, my, how, how do my makeup artist friends accept the digital creator that paints their face? This is if they don't have a brand and they don't have something to sell. And then how do you legitimize what that content creator is doing without it crossing over and taking work away from the makeup artist that's been assisting and worked their way up over the past 28 years? Did you, do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's it's,
0: it's a like real the challenge. two worlds do need mm. to live
1: together, um, without the sort of the makeup artists just doing the show and the shoot and whatever, feeling like they have to create the content online because I think there's a real pressure for them to become these influencers online, content creators, or whatever. Um, sort of just I think everything about the industry that's a challenge is sort of like a it's like a puzzle, mm. and I think about it a lot probably way too much until i probably fall asleep at night and i think now, if only we could just do that 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 might work out better for everyone you know
0: yeah there's a lot of kind of um, yin and yang i always think of yeah it, there is kind of like, yeah. there's a lot of contradictions and, and one cannot live without the other um but it's actually that the balance sometimes is off
1: dependent on it's like that whole hair salon thing yeah it's the most welcoming environment to work in you can be any part of that lgbtqia community and feel like you just belong in a hair salon but my god you know what if you're going in for a haircut you've either got to go to the barber shop or the ladies hairdressing salon it's so it's so binary from the outside but so yeah. non-binary from the inside it's and isn't the weirdest it, thing
0: isn't it funny how the experiences in the two are so different yeah but you're going in essentially for the same thing I which is know. to have your I've, haircut
1: i've got a really good book uh, i bought and i want to say it's about the sort of um it's on my bookshop somewhere and i can't see it it's about the For community of... listening
0: millie's Com- lovingly looking at her wall right now i'm looking <laughs> at my wall right now i'm looking
1: <laughs> at my book i think it's called you next that's it you next and it's basically um a book of like sort of the images of barbershops okay and the community of barbershops hold on i'm just going to see if i can find it i think it
0: says think
1: yeah reflection in black barbershops and okay. just the images are just so like, you know, of like people just sitting in. Yeah. It's just, it's just such a, you know, in some parts of the world, you know, barbershops are really amazing communities, you know. Generations
0: and generations of people going to that same barber, you know, I cut your granddad's hair, your hair, your That's dad's same, hair. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's, it is really interesting. And I do think it's going to take, um, part of me questions if it will always be in that you know while while I said to you everything's changed nothing's changed from a marketing perspective you know we've done a lot of stuff how we communicate it's going to change you know as human beings Andrew Tenza who came uh, to our event and was one of the panelists said something very similar which was you know don't confuse kind of generations with cohorts of people and the different stages they're in in life and you know younger people have more of a zest for life and want to take on the world and the olders and it obviously is categorizing in masses are a bit more kind of jaded and therefore their approach to communication and experiences and expendable income and all these different things impact how we talk to those individuals um okay so i have i genuinely could talk to you about this all day but you're a very busy woman so i have one one more question for you it's a really simple one which is if you could give one piece of advice to marketers brand managers anyone that's listening today based on what we've spoke about within the category what would that piece of advice be
1: um oh god that's such a difficult one i mean i was just thinking about what you were saying and i was thinking do i feel as a 55 year old you know essentially middle-aged woman do i feel like i don't have a zest for life anymore do i feel like those energetic that energetic part of myself the sort of experimental bit of myself is gone and I don't feel like that at all it's probably why I do what I do um I would say never judge a book by its cover (laughs) basically
0: it's as simple as
1: that you know
0: and if there was a change don't overly define
1: people don't overly define people let people seek you I just think we overly define everything Like, we've got to have a flipping name for everything. Like, I remember having a makeup brand in a major store and they were like, your brand needs to target eager experimentalists. I'm like, why? Like, who is that? You know, they even had a bloody name for it. Rebecca or Belinda or something. And I think that that we overly define everything. Why do we do that? Because it makes us feel confident that we know what we're doing. It's just, you can know what you're doing without having to overly define everything. It's just go with your gut. It's like, you know, nine times out of 10, you know what's, what's right. I know that, you know, as a marketeer, you often have to sort of prove to um, clients and what have you that, that they're going to get something for their money. But I think, I think the, the, the days of overly defining the consumer are just long gone. I just think it's just that to me is really old fashioned. It's not moving on at all.
0: That's a statement there. And then yeah. I'm going to capture that one. The days <laughs> of overly defining the
1: consumer are long gone. Yeah, they just are. It's just rubbish. It's absolutely rubbish. I wear the same mascara my 15 year old daughter wears. Who cares?
0: Yeah, I think things are more fluid than they ever have been. And I think by staying open minded in that conversation and again, holding on to why you're here and how you're trying to help someone yeah. rather than being
1: open-minded it. is the key being open-minded is the key I think they're sort of like nothing irritates me more than narrow-minded people I find it so frustrating mm. and I think it's so damaging to success to be narrow-minded
0: yeah it's very stifling to creativity isn't it anyway yeah. thank you thank so you much. so much thank you I know
1: we ran over a little bit oh
0: no no this an absolute pleasure you've done so much I could talk Amazing. to you for honestly hours and uh uh, yeah thank you so much everyone thanks for, for having me, me Hannah thanks, really lovely to
1: chat to you take care see you soon